Notice in verse 29 of Matthew chapter 24, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be dark and the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So this week we're, the second week on historicism versus futurism, and this argument we're looking at today one of their main arguments to prove that Bible prophecy has been fulfilled is Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse that this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled, meaning that generation there present at that day. Now, it's been uh, about 2,000 years since Jesus said that. All those people are dead. Okay? All those people are dead. We are definitely a whole new generation. We're generations away. And therefore, the event where that we see here, for example, the tribulation, because he says after the tribulation of those days, and this is the only place in the Bible where the what we would call the tribulation is called the tribulation. Everybody likes to talk about Daniel's 70th week, how it's all tribulation. Well, the problem is there's only one place in the Bible where it calls the tribulation, and it's in Matthew chapter 24. And after the tribulation, that's where we see Jesus coming in the clouds, where we see the angels gathering up the elect. That all happens after the tribulation. And so that's where we get the whole post-trib thing from. All right? One of my favorite preachers, and I don't care if you get mad that I like this guy, it's, you know, Dr. Dennis Corll. And, you know, he says, you know, he was talking about this post-trib pre-wrath. That's an oxymoron, is what he said. Meaning, you're a moron if you believe that. You know, and he... We can't be here for any of you. And it's just like, you know, he gave no scripture to prove that. But the truth is, it's not mid-trib. He, you know, he's like, it's mid-trib. It's a mid-trib doctrine repackaged. Well, how do you get that when we're always going to after the tribulation? And you say, well, that's, that's the midpoint. Not according to the only place in the Bible where this is referred to as the tribulation. It says after the tribulation. So after that, after the tribulation... Jesus returns in the cloud. He gathers up his elect. That's us. It's not the Jews. And Jesus said, after that, after that, when he said all this, he said, this generation should not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So, apparently, you know, if the preterists are right that he was referring to that generation there at that day, then this event that we're all waiting for had to have already happened. And they say that it happened in 70 A.D., and that creates a lot of problems for what we teach uh, when it comes to end times and when it comes to our eschatology. So here's the question, you know, who's right? You know, are we right or are they right? How do we explain this argument of this generation should not pass? Because most people would agree in Matthew 23, and we talked about this last week, when he prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem, he says all these things will come upon this generation. And I believe the book of Luke is even more clear when he's saying it's going to happen to this generation. I mean, he's saying, you're going to see this. The people that he was talking to were going to see the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says it's this generation. But then when he gets to Matthew 24 and he says this generation, you know, we would all say, well, it's not referring to that generation. Then it's referring to the generation that sees those things. And that's pretty much the typical answer to that. But, you know, we got to prove that because, um, you know, somebody's right and somebody's wrong on this. And so we got to prove that that is, in fact, the case. So because it does seem like there's an inconsistency when we say this generation was them in Matthew 23, but this generation in Matthew 24 was not them. It's hopefully us. Right. So how do we explain this? Well, first off, let's go to the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 1. It says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And this is right after he's just reamed out the Jews. Right after he said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. 
And so understand in the minds of the Jews and in Jesus' disciples at that time, he's talking about the end. He's talking about the end of the world or whatever. And it says they came out, the disciples came to show, for to show them the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then preterists or historicists, 70 AD is when that was fulfilled. 70 AD, it all had to be done by 70 AD. So there's a, but there's a slight problem with that, okay? Because it, that didn't, if you study the history, that didn't all completely happen in 70 AD, okay? Um, in fact, Micah chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high place of the forest. So that was prophesied that, that Jerusalem would be a would be plowed. It would be plowed as a field. Okay? Now that's an amazing thing when you consider the structures that they had there, that these things are all going to be wiped out and it was going to, and it was going to be like a plowed field where you wouldn't even be able to tell it was ever inhabited. That was something that the Bible's prophesying. And they would tell you that happened in 70 AD, but the thing is there's another event that these people don't like to tell you about that happened in 135. AD. 65 years later, there was another event. It's known as the Bar Kokhba uh, revolt, if I'm saying that right. A man named Simon Bar Kokhba that many believed was the Messiah. He ended up convincing many Jews that he was the Messiah. He had a revolt against the Romans. And according to Cassius Dio, 580,000 Jews perished in the war and many more died of hunger and disease. In addition, many Judean war captives were sold into slavery, and the Jewish communities of Judea were devastated to an extent which some scholars describe as genocide. After this event in 135 AD, the Jews ended up being banned from Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, you can look at this in history, the Jews have this in their own history, they talk about this, that this is a very famous event in their history. They refer to this Simon Bar Kokhba as a false messiah because many people did believe that he was the Messiah and he got many people killed. But after they did this, Rome went through and they literally, with oxen, plowed Jerusalem. They literally, anything that was left, any evidence of anything left, they literally plowed it. They removed everything. And then they changed the name of the place, of the city at that time, to Syria, Palestina. And that's why you know many people refer to that area too as Palestine as part of it. Because of the fact the Romans, they got tired of these revolts coming up with the Jews because the Jews continued to believe that that was their land, that that was their territory, that the Messiah was going to come. And so even though they had that devastating defeat in 70 AD and the temple was destroyed and I mean over a million were killed during that time, they still believed that the Messiah was going to come someday and was going to save them. And so after time... You know, they went and just kind of started to rebuild, and they tried to rebuild their temple uh, during that time. And they were planning a revolt, and a man came along, Simon Bar Kokhba, who convinced people he was the Messiah. They followed him, and it was another, I mean, really ugly, nasty war. And Rome got tired of it. So, like, you know what? We're going to remove any remembrance of Jerusalem from that land. And so they did. They plowed that so you would never be able to tell that a temple is there, which is more evidence, once again, that that Temple Mount location, the, the quote Temple Mount location, is a total fraud that's there today. That was a Roman fortress. There was a reason the Roman fortress got left, because the Romans used it. Right? And they, they, left, they left that, but the Mount Zion area, it got completely plowed, and then they went and they built a pagan temple there, kind of claiming it for themselves, just trying to do whatever they could to just get the Jews to forget about that land. And, you know, but Jews never did forget about it, you know, and they're still trying to get it to this day. It's just, uh, you know, a big thing they've been fighting about forever. But they don't, the historicists never talk about this event because in reality, these events, you know, that Jesus prophesied didn't fully come to completion, you could say, until 135 AD, or at least the prophecy there that's in Micah, that didn't come to pass until 135 AD. So, you know, it's once again, they use history when it fits their agenda, but when it doesn't, then, it, then the history goes out the window. So in verse three, 
of Matthew 24, it says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? Now pay attention to these questions. When shall these things be? What things? The destruction of the temple. That's what he's just been called. That's just what he's, that's what he's been talking about, right? When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, there is no doubt that the disciples' thinking when they ask this question is this destruction of the temple is a reference to the end of the world. And this is when, you know, and this is when Jesus Christ is going to come. Maybe probably too referring to the Holy Come of the Ten Thousand of the Saints. They obviously didn't understand a lot of things about end times during during that time. So Jesus here, he's about to uh, explain some things to them that were very important because he does not want them being deceived. There was a great danger because of some things that were coming for them that they might get tricked into believing. And so he's about to warn them here. And what we're going to see here in Matthew 24, all right, and forgive this term, I hate to sound like a dispensationalist, but there is a division that is clearly seen in Matthew 24, okay? And you don't have to rightly divide with Clarence Larkin's books to figure it out because Clarence Larkin divides it wrong, okay? But there is, there clearly is a division here that we're going to see eventually. But notice what Jesus says in verse 24, or verse 4. Pay attention to this. And Jesus answers to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. No man deceive about what? About what I'm about to tell you about. What's, about what's coming for you. Don't be deceived about my coming. That take you that no man deceive you. So what we get from this is there's going to be events that appear to be fulfillments before the things that Jesus is about to, about to describe actually take place. Jesus is warning them there will be things that appear to point to my coming and to my return, and they will not be the thing. Now, that's an important thing to remember, too, because a lot of things in 70 AD do look like the tribulation. They do look like end times events. But Jesus told the disciples, man, guys, don't let anybody deceive you. There will be things that come up that look like the end of the world, that look like signs of my coming, but they will not be. And don't be deceived. So notice that. And he says in verse 5, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Simon bar for example, that he did that. And the Tal- the, even the Talmud refers to him as a false messiah. I forgot what it is they call him, but it means false messiah. Verse 6, it says, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. Underline this in your Bible, but the end is not yet. Okay? So all these things that he's talking about here. Now, and I've done this before too, and you know, I believe I was wrong. But most of them, when we read about these verses right here, we're thinking tribulation. Even us, even me, I'm thinking future here. But but watch this, all right? He's telling him, so he says in verse 6, you should hear wars and rumors of wars. See, be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So Jesus has answered one of their questions, basically telling them that the things he's talking about are things to come, but they are not the end of the world. So he is about to tell them, he's about to answer their question about the destruction of Jerusalem. But notice what he says, but the end is not yet. Okay? He's showing, we've got what you all are talking about here, you're talking about as one single event, but we're talking about two events here. There's two separate things that are coming up. And so in verse 7 he says, For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences, and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Okay? Now, interestingly enough, these events that he refers to, you know, the false Christ, the wars, the famines, the pestilences, that's the same order that we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse, isn't it? And I've used that before, and I've pointed to showing this is showing the tribulation right here. But now think about this. Jesus just told them, in the one verse, these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And he has not changed subject yet. And, he's, cause, and, and let me just kind of add this, all right? Just think about it this way when you read this. In verse 7, it says, for nation shall rise against nation, but the end is not yet. 
The kingdom against kingdom, but the end is not yet. There should be famines, but the end is not yet. Pestilences, but the end is not yet. And earthquakes in diverse places, but the end is not yet. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. So he's telling them there's going to be a lot of bad things that you're going to see. When you're seeing these big famines, you're going to think it's the end. When you're seeing these wars, it's the end. These false cries coming, it's the end. But the end is not yet. These are the beginning of sorrows. So, um, you know, and, and the thing is, too, I think there's a reason the order of those things he said are the same as the events of you know, uh, the seals in Revelation, too, because Satan's trying to deceive people. If Satan's wanting to deceive people into thinking that the end is coming, wouldn't he try making it look like what the end is supposed to look like? I mean, isn't that what we typically do when we're trying to counterfeit something? When we're trying to convince somebody of something that's fake, we use something that looks like the real thing. And that's what Jesus is warning them about here. He's warning them that, hey, there's something that's going to come that's going to look like the end, but it's not the end. Okay, This is the beginning of sorrows. So verse 9 says, And then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. All of these things here are still the beginning of sorrows. And the end is not yet. And listen, you can, you can go in the book of Acts and see every one of these things coming to pass. You see people betraying each other, hating one another. We see in First John, he's talking about how, uh, you know, brothers that were, you know, supposed brothers that were hating them, which I believe was the Jews that he was referring to. It, we see them being killed in the book of Acts, being, being taken before councils, standing before kings. Everything that Jesus said was going to happen before the end, it happened in the book of Acts. Every, every bit of these things. And then notice in verse 14, he said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, look, he, Jesus is very clear. The gospel has got to be preached to the whole world before the end comes. And you know what? That happened before 70 AD. You can look in Colossians 1.23. It says, If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, made a minister. That's how effective that first generation of Christian was. They preached the gospel to the whole world. That's what Paul said in Colossians. In Acts 17, verse 6, it says, And when they had found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. That's what that first generation of Christians did. They're like, man, these people have turned the world upside down. What are they doing? Man, they've shook the world. They have affected the entire world with their preaching. And Paul said every creature under heaven had heard it. That's how effective they were in that first generation without television, without the internet. Just, I mean, footwork, going all over, preaching the gospel everywhere. Those thousands of people that were getting saved there at Pentecost, they went and they spread the gospel to the whole world. That gospel of the kingdom was preached in the, to the whole world. And then notice Jesus says, and then shall the end come. After that happens, then shall the end come. So, there's clearly a shift here from Jesus talking about the beginning of sorrows to now he's starting to talk about the end. Here is where the division is. The division is between verses 14 and 15. It's very, very clear to see that he's saying these things have to happen first, but the end is not yet. After the gospel of the kingdom is preached, then shall the end come. And I just showed you that that had happened by 70 A.D. Okay. So, look at verse 15. It says, When ye shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. And then you all know this passage well here. Alright? You know, he that is on the housetop, not come down. Pray your flight be not in the winter. On the Sabbath day, for then shall be great tribulation. Uh, and then notice what he says in verse 23. Then, if any man say unto you, Lo, here is Christ or there, Believe it not, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, which will show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall see, deceive the very elect. And so he's just warning them, don't listen to the false prophets. Don't listen to these people who are saying that I am Christ. 
Don't be deceived by them, for as lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even to the west, even so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. When Jesus Christ comes, he's coming fast. For wheresoever the carcasses, there shall the eagles be gathered together. Why does it bring that up? It's not because it's referring to Armageddon. It's because every time you see eagles mentioned in the Bible, it's always referring to their speed, their swiftness. And that's why he's bringing that up. When Jesus comes, he's coming fast. It's going to be quick. And he's going, to, he's going to gather us up. He's going to send his angels. It's all going to happen fast. We don't need to go looking for him. He's going to come for us. So whenever, wherever we're at, when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to take us. So if somebody comes along and says, hey, the Messiah is here. You know, he's over in this place. He's up on this mountain. We're not going to go looking. We're not going to we're not going to go after him. We're not going to follow them. Hey, he's over in this country building a building an army. Let's let's go over there. No, we're not going to go over there. When Jesus Christ returns, he's going to come for us. And wherever we're at, he's going to he's going to come. He's going to send his angels to gather us up. And then, you know, in verse 34, verily I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So when you read this and when the historicists read this, they'll say all this had to be done. By 7080, all that had to be done in that generation. So, but here's a major problem. It, you can make a great argument that you know the tribulation happened. You could say you could even make a pretty good argument the abomination of desolation happened. There's historical accounts of things that took place in the temple before 70 AD where that look kind of like the abomination of desolation. You know, you could you can make an argument like that. And but you know what? You cannot, no matter how hard you try, make it look like verses 30 and 31 happen. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He shall send his angel with a great sound of a trumpet. They shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There is absolutely no way that happened. Now, allow me right now to just defeat, you know, this teaching the way a dispensationalist would. All right, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go further than them. Okay, I'm gonna, because here's what the dispensationalists will do. You know, they will tell you. I, I just listened to one this week. He said, you know how you refute preterism? It's real simple. Just take the Bible literally. Well, yeah. That'll work, but can you answer their question about this generation should not pass? And so he's going, he's, he's trying to explain that, and he's just like, well, you know, you just got to rightly divide, and, you know, 2 Timothy 2.15, and he just kept saying rightly divide over and over again. He was like making no sense. He's just rightly divide this, rightly divide that, and, you know, and if you rightly, rightly divide this, and you multiply it by the square root of the number of Peter Ruckman's wives, and, you know, and then you subtract, you know, However many years Peter Ruckman lived, you know, times two, you know, for the, or, you know, four or three for the three Gospels, you know, and you rightly divide. It's very simple that, you know, this is the answer. You know, it, it was just weird. It was incoherent babbling. And, and the thing is, you know, yes, we are, Jesus Christ did not return in 70 AD, but, you know, can you, we should be able to explain this generation shall not pass. We should be able to explain what that's talking about. We should be able to show them where they're wrong. What is this? Rightly divide, rightly divide, Clarence Larkin, you know, whatever, you know, we're going to inhabit the planets one of these days, you know, aliens, all that, retardation. So, but let me, let me go ahead and do what the typical dispensationalists would do because it is partially appropriate what they do is they will prove that this did not happen. Okay, from the scriptures, because there is no way, no matter how hard you try, there is no way to spiritualize the coming of Christ and the resurrection. It has to be literal. The Bible is clear that it is literal. Let me just jump to a bunch of passages. Second Peter three, seven says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, the same word as the heavens, and the earth that had the water at one time that was ready for the flood. Okay. By the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We talked about that last week. You can't say that the flood was a literal flood in Noah's day when the Bible says by the same word, fire is kept in store for judgment and then say, well, that's a spiritual thing. No, it's literal. There is a literal fire that is going to come. 
There is a literal global warming that's going to come that's going to infuriate Greta Thunberg. She's going to be screaming, I dare you, or how dare you, and all that. So, I mean, there, there is a real, literal fire coming. And it's not because of carbon emissions. It's because of man's sin. That's why it's going to come. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now, do we believe in a spiritual resurrection of Christ or a physical resurrection of Christ? We believe in a full-blown, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you do not believe, and I'm not always quick to just say, if you disagree with stuff, you're not saved. But folks, if you don't believe in a literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not saved. You are not going to heaven. You've got to believe that. Believe what you want about the abomination of desolation, but you better believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't, you are not saved. If we believe that. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Talking about, we're going to rise too. And then you all know the passage, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. Not, not a spirit, not just an image. No, the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven. With a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ, the people that they were sorrowing about, that he didn't want them sorrowing like others which have no hope, they're going to rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. How do you spiritualize that, folks? There's no way to say that that happened in 70 AD. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible now is the corruption of our body literal or figurative it is literal okay you know just get around a dead body for a few days and you'll figure out no, that's little man that's corrupt it's gross it stinks let's bury it okay but the bible says this corruptible must put on incorruption this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory folks how how do you spiritualize that that's literal it says in verse 12 of first corinthians 15 now if christ be preached that he rose from the dead how say some among you there is no resurrection of the dead i mean it, why would we believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead and not believe we're going to rise from the dead one of these days. And folks, I've asked some of these people. They don't believe we're going to rise from the dead one of these days. They do not. They flat out, I, they, I do not believe in a physical resurrection. So that's what they said. But if we preach that Christ rose from the dead, how can you preach a, a bodily resurrection of Christ and not believe in a coming resurrection for us? That doesn't make any sense, Paul's saying. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then the dead rise not. And uh, or the, or if there be no resurrection, then is Christ not risen? So if we don't, if there's no physical resurrection for us, then Jesus hasn't risen either. You can't have it both ways. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised? And if Christ be not raised, then your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Then they're just dead. If there's no resurrection, then they're just dead. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? There, there is no way in the world you've got to just be a flat-out Bible denier to reject a physical, bodily resurrection of Christ and the believer. And you know what? I don't think I'm stretching here when I say that if you don't believe in a physical resurrection of the believers, then you're not saved. Because Paul said... If the dead rise not, then Christ is not risen. So if somebody says, well, I believe in a resurrection, a physical resurrection of Christ, but not for us. Well, you can't. According to the Apostle Paul, you can't believe. That doesn't even make sense. So if you don't believe in a physical resurrection of the believers, you are lost. 
you need to get saved. If that, uh, that, according to the Apostle Paul. That's pretty clear right there, folks. It just shows you how dangerous some of this teaching is. So there is there's no way on earth that you can say the Scriptures don't teach a literal, physical resurrection. This has been a foundational teaching since the beginning, folks. The oldest book in the Bible, Job. In Job 19, verse 24, then they were uh, great... or. Talking about his words, that they were old, and my words were graven with an iron pen and uh, lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. How do you do that without a resurrection? Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. He's a saint, man. He didn't understand how it was all going to work, but he knew that even though one of these days worms are going to eat this body, I'm going to see God in the flesh one of these days. And you listen, I'm excited about seeing God in the Spirit and with my soul when it goes to heaven to be absent with the bodies to be present with the Lord. But you know, there's something about seeing it physically too. And I'm looking forward to seeing him with these eyes. And even if I die before the rapture, I'm still going to get that experience because I'm going to rise at the resurrection of the dead and my body is going to be changed. One of these days, these eyes will behold Jesus Christ. What if you go blind before that? I'm going to get my sight back. I'm going to have a resurrected body. It's called a resurrection. There is no way absolutely no way at all to get around that there is a resurrection coming and that's what the dispensational pretty much do and then drop the microphone boy we got them but wait we haven't answered their question let's answer their question let's not let's not let's not let people get hung up on the this generation shall not pass argument and let's not just ignore that okay we believe the entire bible we believe all scriptures given by inspiration if, if we're right that that's referring to another generation, we ought to be able to take the Bible, we ought to be able to take the text and be honest and look at it and prove that that is referring to another generation. So how do we explain it? And, for, and go back to Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14 are the beginning of sorrows. All the things he's talking about in verses 1 through 14, he specifically says are not the end. Okay? He's warning them, too, about being deceived into thinking that they are the end. But then, verses 15 to 31, I do believe, are all referring to the future. I believe everything in verses 15 to 31 is in our future. So, when Jesus said this generation in 23, and I'm going to prove this to you, he was, in fact, saying what he had talked about would happen in that generation. I do believe that. But in chapter 24, he is referring to the generation that sees the abomination of desolation. Okay, so now go back to verse 3. Look what it says. So it says, As he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be? What shall be the, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And he said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Okay, so he, he tells them about these things that are coming. He goes on, verse 6, says, But the end is not yet. Verse 14, In this gospel the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So all these things he was talking about from 14 back, these were things that were going to happen before the end came. And I believe there clearly is a separation here because Jesus now is answering their next question. All right, And that's about when he's going to be coming and he was warning about all these things because he didn't want them to think the events of verses 1 through 14 were signs of his coming. That, that's what he's warning them about. And then he goes on to tell them, you're going to know the end is near when you see the abomination of desolation. He said, Brother Tommy, it looks like when he's saying these things that they're all connected and that there's no break. How do you explain the break? How do you explain the gap that is in there? Okay? And I... And I I believe I can explain that gap, but hang on, hang on, just a little bit. Um, I, you got to, you got to save the big reveal to the very end. You know, that's how you keep people's attention uh, through these things. So he says in verse 15, 
When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the end of the prophet, stay in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. The abomination of desolation is the key event that tells us the end is near. Second Thessalonians, turn over there. We see the exact same thing in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him. But that can't be talking about the rapture right there. Our gathering together. You know, why do we call it the rapture and not the gathering? Because then people might think gathering in verse 1 here is talking about the rapture. And when He sends His angel to gather together His elect, we might think that's the rapture too. And that creates a lot of problems if you're pre-trip. But you know what? I'm not embarrassed about thinking that the gathering of the believers is the rapture. Now, that's not the same word you see in 1 Thessalonians 4. Well, caught up with them, the dead in Christ and the clouds. It sounds kind of like a gathering to me. So in verse 2, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, is that the day of Christ is at hand. Now, we believe that's a rapture. He's telling them not to be troubled that the day of Christ is at hand. And then he says, let no man deceive you by any means. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 24? Take heed that no man deceive you. Don't be deceived into thinking I'm coming. That's, that's what he warned about in Matthew chapter 24. And he said, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying I am Christ. Believe him not. And so he's telling them all these things are going to happen. And he's saying, don't be deceived into thinking that those are signs of my coming. The Apostle Paul saying the exact same thing right here. And then he says, for that day shall not come except the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's the abomination of desolation right there. There's no doubt about it at all. And the Apostle Paul saying, hey, don't be deceived into thinking Christ, the day of Christ is at hand. The abomination of desolation hasn't happened yet. And that is the key event that tells us that the end is near. Now, people say, well, what kicks it all up? Brother Tommy, what do you think kicks off the final seven years, the tribulation, the end times? What do you think kicks it all off? I don't know for sure. Now, the pre-tribbers are just like, rapture. Okay, you have no scripture to prove that, all right? You are assuming that because Clarence Larkin told you that all of the tribulation is the wrath of God, and we've not been pointed under wrath. We've got to get out of here before that can happen. But you can't find any scripture that teaches that the rapture kicks these events off. You can't do that. The thing that Jesus said and the thing that the Apostle Paul said is we know that it's not about to happen if the abomination of desolation hasn't happened yet. So I do believe that there are going to be some things that take place before the abomination of desolation, but we aren't going to be able to, probably won't be able to conclusively say, this is it, folks. I believe when the clock starts ticking on the final 70th week, I don't know for sure that we will know that it started. We might have a pretty good idea We'll probably be speculating a little bit, but folks, I, I'm not going to be out there saying, oh, it, it's, it's about here. I hear Gabriel, you know, warming up his lips, getting ready to blow the trumpet. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to start acting like the pre-trivers until the abomination of desolation. Because Jesus said, there's going to be a lot of things deceiving you. And he said, and Jesus and Paul both pointed the abomination of desolation. Wait till you see that. When you see that. Then you know it's about to happen. That is the key event. Now, in the dispensation world, in the pre-trib world, they don't, they don't talk about that. Okay? They can't because it messes up everything in their theology. But that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. So I don't, but I don't think we'll know for sure. I don't know what event kicks it off. So why did Jesus say this generation should not pass when it was going to be so far in the future? Because here he is. Talking about all these one events from verses 1 through 14, then all of a sudden, verse 15, he's talking about his coming. And it kind of looks like it all goes together right here. But do you remember what Jesus said in verse 36? What did Jesus say in verse 36? So, first up, he's telling them, all these things are the beginning, these things have to happen first, then the end shall come.
So Jesus knows there's going to be events that take place before the end comes, but there's something that Jesus doesn't know. And he said in verse 36, but of that day and that hour, knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. So Jesus said, when it comes to the coming of Christ, uh, his coming, he said, I don't know when it is. So the thing is, what Jesus, the reason it kind of looks like it's all running together there is because of the fact that these beginning of sorrows, the gospel you know, being preached in all the world, these were things that had to happen. And once those things have happened, at any point, I believe, I believe the end time events have been imminent since, you know, you, you know since 70 AD or whenever. But notice, but the thing, that doesn't make the rapture imminent. Y'all understand that? We, I think we talked a little bit about this last week. The things that are to come, you know, they're at the door, they're at hand. Whatever is going to kick things off to get the ball rolling, I do believe is imminent. But the rapture is not the first event that, in, you know, in the end things that are going to take place. And, and there's no way to, for anybody to prove that biblically. In fact, the Bible proves otherwise. So Jesus did not know when the end was going to come. God did not tell him this. And so it's very clear, you know, it would make sense that all these things Jesus was talking about in verses 1 through 14 were events that were not the end. But then he goes on to tell them about, about events that would be events pointing to the end. And then he said the same thing that he said in chapter 23 you know, this generation shall not pass. He's talking about the generation that sees those end time events that he's talking about. That is exactly what we see in the scriptures. It is actually consistent with how we preach Matthew chapter 23. He's saying all these things are going to come on this generation. But when he gets to chapters 15, you know, through 30, uh, 31, whatever, he's saying these things are the end events. Don't be deceived into thinking the beginning of sorrows are the end events. But just understand, when you start seeing these things, like the abomination of desolation, it's near, even at the door. And it's a short time, folks. It's a short time. It's not figuratively this long period of time. So the, the generation that sees the abomination of desolation will also see the rapture. They will see the rest of those things. That generation shall not pass. When the abomination of desolation comes, it's not going to be long. But that event has not happened. There, there's, there's no way to, you know, to prove that event has happened. It just it clearly has not. So verses 15 to 31, those are the end. And I believe that I believe, though, also that everything Jesus prophesied in Matthew chapter 24 could have been fulfilled in one generation and in, in that generation. But Jesus flat out said, I don't know when the end's going to be. So it could have all been in that generation. The, what the Bible prophesied is going to take place in the end times. It easily can all happen in one generation. It can happen in seven years. But he did not say it was going to start in that generation. But the generation that sees the abomination of desolation, that generation won't pass till all those things be fulfilled. So there, there's where your division is, folks. And once again... God did not tell us how long that was going to be. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible. If Jesus didn't even know about it, you're not going to figure it out. I know Peter Ruckman thought he had it figured out several times and predicted the dates of the rapture, but he didn't have it figured out at all. And so further evidence that there is a generation that was then and another generation to come, I think, can be seen in Luke chapter 17. Turn over there real quick. Luke chapter 17, where we're seeing the same events being talked about. In verse 20, he says... And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And when he said, and, and he said unto his disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here or see there, go not after them, nor follow them. For as lightning lighteth out of one part under heaven and shineth unto the other part of heaven, even so or so also shall the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. So these things have got to happen first. 
But as in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And notice this, in that day when the Son of Man is revealed... He which is upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him not likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife? That sounds a lot like what he said if the abomination of desolation happens. Let him that is on the housetop not come down. And people say too, well, why did Jesus say all that in Matthew 24 about pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath? You know, he either in Jerusalem, flee into Judea, all that stuff. That was clearly... For the Jews in that generation, well, the thing is, it would have been for them in that generation if all those things would have taken place in that day. But it didn't take place in that day. Jesus didn't know when it was going to take place. But if it would have taken place in that day, that's you know they needed to pray that their flight wouldn't be on the Sabbath, and they would need to flee into Judea when they see the abomination of desolation and all those things. But it didn't happen in that day. He's just, he was basically explaining how these things are going to be. But notice in, when he said in verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. Here's the question. What, at what point did that generation reject Jesus? Because there's an earlier event, not long before this, where Sam Gitt teaches all the history changed when they refused Jesus as the Messiah. You know, so was it before this? That doesn't make sense because Jesus is talking about the future. So was it when he died on the cross that he was rejected of that generation? Because that doesn't really work either because we see thousands and thousands of Jews being saved after the resurrection, don't we? We see thousands of Jews saved at Pentecost. So at what point did that generation reject Jesus? Because he says, this generation's got to reject me first. At what point did that happen? I personally think... God gave them 40 years to accept him. And I believe 70 A.D. was the end of it. I do believe that when 70 A.D. came, I do believe that was, you know, that was the end of that generation when you know, and they didn't get another chance. And there's never been a revival with the Jewish people since then. Never. And there's not going to be another one with 144,000. It's just not going to happen. So I believe... The rejection of that generation, I, I believe the fulfillment of that came in 70 AD. Jesus said that has to happen first. I've got to be rejected of this generation because it's this generation that's going to lose their temple, that their house is going to be left desolate, that's going to suffer, that's going to suffer all these things. That's going to happen to this generation, and then that has to happen. And then there's a day coming when the Son of Man is going to be revealed. I, I think very clear evidence that this is a, a future thing. And I think it's interesting, after he mentions that day when the Son of Man is revealed, all of a sudden, his language, is what he's saying, is exactly like what we see with the abomination of desolation. Why? Because that's the key event, folks. When that event comes, that's when we're going to start, you know, counting days and, you know, you know, checking all the theories. You know, I'm not convinced in the 75-day theory. I hope that's true, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. But you better believe I'm marking my calendar that day when that happens. You say, well, how are we going to know for sure when the abomination of desolation happens? I think we're going to know when it happens. Okay? I, I, the the Bible is very clear that that's the thing we're watching for. So it's going to be, I, I do believe it's going to be clear when that happens. So the language, the message here, it's clear. There was a generation that would reject Christ. And that would suffer for it. And that was that generation in 70 AD. It was that generation that Jesus warned, don't follow these false signs. When the wars and the rumors of wars comes, when the famines comes, when the pestilences come, when all these things come, the end is not yet. Certain things got to happen first. We've got to preach the gospel to the whole world first. After that, then shall the end come. And then when you see the abomination of desolation, that's when you know. Je yet, Jesus didn't explain a gap there. Because he didn't know how long it was going to be. But he clearly made a distinction between the events of 1 through 14 and the events of 15 on. 
He clearly made a distinction there, and he flat out said, I don't know when it's going to be. So until we see that abomination of desolation, you know, we don't need to be going to this, you know, this generation shall not pass them. Okay, Brian Sharp's been for years teaching that 1948 was, you know, the budding of the fig tree when Israel became a nation and this generation shall not pass. Jesus Christ has got to come back before the generation from 1948 passes. Well, the clock's ticking on that one. You know, and he'll be dead before everybody's died out from 1948. Uh, unfortunately, I wish he could live to see that entire generation die out. Say, now will you admit you're wrong? <laughs> and he still, he still wouldn't. It wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. So... There was a generation that see Christ. There was a generation that see Christ revealed, and we are all living right now in a time of a spiritual kingdom. And one day, Jesus Christ will be revealed to the world. That has not happened yet. Then He will set up a physical kingdom. And I don't know for sure how long it's going to be after the abomination of desolation that Jesus returns. But here's one thing I do know for sure: it will be in that generation. That generation will not pass. Till all those things be fulfilled. And so I believe that right there is the explanation. I think that's proof, solid proof, that that generation in Matthew 24 is referring to the generation that sees the abomination of desolation versus the that specific generation that Jesus said these things are going to come on when it comes to the destruction of the temple. And you can't, in any, in, said either, either way you look at it, even if that you think that's a terrible explanation of Matthew, or this generation should not pass, well, you know what? I haven't heard any good explanation for how the resurrection is not physical. And I just showed Bible that if we don't rise, Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, our preaching's in vain. We are yet in our sins. Those that are asleep, they've perished. Paul said they're all in hell, and we're all heading for hell. And the truth is, I do believe Jesus rose. I believe we're going to rise. So I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Okay, fine. You believe Jesus rose, but you don't believe we're going to rise one of these days. Therefore, you're a liar. You don't believe either. You're going to hell, and you are in your sins. And your preaching is in vain. And they, they need to get saved. For, for sure. If somebody believes the abomination of desolation already happened, they don't need to get saved because of that. They just need to get corrected by my preaching. And, and uh, they... but. Anyway, so I hope that was a help. I hope that all made sense. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I pray uh, this was a help. Lord, I pray you'll help us to uh, be looking for your return, be watching. And in, in the meantime, Lord, we'll just be continuing to win souls, preaching the gospel to every creature. In your name we pray. Amen.